It's in John's epistles to the church and in 1 John chapter 5 verse 7 he makes this statement and uh, today I'm going to teach on and talk about the Trinity. Uh, I won't waste time asking how many of you have ever heard a total sermon preached about the Trinity because I don't think there'd be very many hands to go up where a whole sermon has been devoted just on the subject of the Trinity. And uh, but it is greatly needed for us to understand the Father. And John says that they are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. It hurts our mind to try to think of the Trinity because we think it's something that can't be understood and in, in an aspect of that, that's absolutely true. We can't figure out how one plus one plus one can equal one. But yet that's what the Bible tells us. Yes. We have God here, and, and John says there are three that bear witness in heaven. There are three. How many are there in heaven? What did John just say there? There are three. We just take out the word to bear witness in case that's stumbling you for a second, but they are three in heaven. Not one. There are three. Yet those three are one. Right? Now the other the other thing that we have a hint of is the Bible talks about a man and a woman in covenant marriage. It says those two, those two are now one. But they're still two, but yet they're one. And that's the only even hint of the Trinity, of the aspect of that oneness that we even see on earth. We we don't have an example of it. We don't have anything that's like that. And, uh, and yet we see God depicted like this throughout the scripture, but most of us haven't given much thought to what that actually means and how our relationship to God is. I'm gonna let you be seated. We, uh, I had a wonderful uh, week this past week because on Wednesday night, I was at James Mitchell's group. Uh, all of James Mitchell's uh, community group, if you guys are in here, just stand up, Brother James. I'll see. Stand up, yeah, all over. And so we had a great time with these guys uh, Wednesday night, and uh, they've been just such a blessing. They've been calling in all the elders to pray for us. And uh, and now they're gonna turn their attention to the deacons. So, uh, <laughs> amen. but we had a wonderful time. And then on Thursday night, I met with Pastor Johanna in her community group. You guys stand up. Yeah, you guys. Amen. Look at all these guys. Man, we had a room full uh, Thursday night. Thank you. And uh, Pastor Johanna had asked me to come in and to to speak on and give a, a, a preview of the topic, the Trinity. And so to me, it's the freshest thing on my heart. So that's what I'm going to talk about again today. We had a great time with those guys. And uh, I told you probably a month, two months ago that I was going to devote a whole Sunday to this, so I promised you, right? And so here I am keeping my word. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here, and I don't mean this from a, uh, a bragging standpoint by any means, but I'm sitting here with a bachelor's degree in theology. And in all that time and all that training and all those classes, not one, sub, not one class was on the Trinity. Uh, not any time was devoted in my obtaining that theological degree in the study or the understanding of the Trinity, which is God. 
uh, in Gen and I knew this from, from our, our studies in Genesis 1 and 1, the very first verse in the Bible says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but the word God there is Elohim in Hebrew. The old covenant's written in Hebrew. And so Elohim is the plural definition or name of God. And you can look that up in any concordance, and it is the plurality is Elohim, and the singular is Eloia. That means just singular. And in the whole chapter of Genesis, chapters one, two, and three, God is referred to, and in most places in the Bible, it is used in the language of the Hebrew language that the Bible's interpreted to English in plurality. It literally says, you know, the gods created the heavens and the earth. And then of course, in verse 26 of Genesis one, God's talking and God says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Trinity. That'd be stupid to stand there and you're just a singular solitary being and say, let us. That'd be like, let us preach this morning. Okay. So God says, let us make man in our image. And then in Genesis 3.22, after the fall, after the sin in the garden, God says, behold, the man has come, become like one of us. And this language is throughout the Bible. Uh, in Isaiah 6, God's uh, calling the prophet Isaiah and commissioning him and and, and it starts out like in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I, also, I saw also the Lord. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And then these seraphim, these angelic beings are described there. And it says that in verse 3 that they cry, holy, holy, holy. That's one holy for each, by the way, who is Lord God Almighty. And then to either and to further confirm that, right down just a couple of verses down in verse eight, he said, Isaiah said, "I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send?'" And then it says, "And who will go for who? For us?" Uh, then Isaiah replied, uh, "You know, here am I, send me." And then of course, we, the Bible just filled with just too many. I could spend the whole day just reading the verses. In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, in the Great Commission, he said, "Go into all the world and baptize." People in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And that's how you see many times we do water baptism here. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that's three. And that's what the Trinity is. Can you say amen? amen. Now why don't we give much of attention to it? Well, the problem is if we don't understand... I say it like this, the most important thought you and I carry is our thought of what we think about when we think about God, who God is. Now I've always, and I've been preaching for over 34 years, I've always genuinely believed in the Trinity and I believe the Trinity was true. However, that belief had little influence on my theology. Uh, God as a Trinity should have been, but listen, was not my starting point when I thought about God. In other words, when I thought about who God is, uh, how God is, I, I didn't start there from the aspect of God being three, yet one. And, and even though my life's message has been a pursuit of knowing God, uh, I never really thought of God as a relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, that wasn't where I started from. And, uh, but I never questioned that, well, yeah, you believe in Trinity? Of course I believe in Trinity. 
And, and to really put legs on that, this is what brought it home to me. When I thought of Adam and Eve in the garden, and the Bible said that God came to them and walked with them in the cool of the evening, I never visualized three people. I never visualized more, but three people. Let me say that right. So when I thought about Adam and Eve in the garden and God coming to walk with them, I thought of three persons. Adam and Eve, and then here, here comes God. It, it, it never really dawned on me, and I never thought that that number was five. And any, any of you guys that study biblical numerology or know what that means, five is the number of what? Grace. Five is the number of what? Grace. Pretty cool, isn't it? And the doctrine of the Trinity was a true theology in my head. But in my heart, I live my life as though it wasn't. Uh, that's what we call being a uh, practical atheist. In other words, um, we, we profess Christ. Now, we're some people that can profess Christ with their mouth, but how they live their life is like an atheist. In other words, they worry, they struggle, and they act like they don't have a God. But yet they'll profess, oh, you know Jesus? Oh, yes, I know the Lord. But then they're, they're greatly troubled by everything because they, they don't see God as a provider for them. Well, when you think about God, when you think about the deepest uh, truth about God's being, who, who God is, the essence, we would say, of God, uh, wh what do you think about? In other words, what does God's thoughts and actions flow out of? Uh, of who, who is this God? Uh, God is not, and I just showed you so clearly, God's not just one person, but he's three. There are three in heaven. There are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, he exists as a relationship of three persons in absolute communion with one another. God does not, listen to me, God does not possess a relationship as a quality of his character and nature. Relationship is not something that God does. Relationship is who God is. And that is the big bomb right there. If you can get that that right there, that's going to change everything for you. Um, God is a triune being. We, we, are, we are created uh, in, in essence in, in, uh, as a, a typology, I guess you could say, of that. We are three. We are spirit, soul, body. God's triuneness is his essence. His, he, his being is indivisible, undividable, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they think, they feel, and they all act as one. Uh, now, I want you to think about this. If God's essence of who God is, if, it, if it's not relationship, if what I'm saying about the triuneness of God is not true, and, and it's not God, God is relationship, he doesn't do it. But if that's not true, then, then relationship then is just something that God does, but it's not who he is. 
that would be no different than saying God has love or God does love, but God is not love. Now we all know the Bible says God is love, right? So love is not an add-on. Love is not something God does occasionally. Now, if, if you can readily accept that, because everything God does, it comes out of the essence of who God is. God is love. God is love. So God is also relationship. And that's where the Bible starts, and, and, and that's where our understanding has got to start. Relationship is not something that God does, and it's not an add-on, but if that, listen, if that's not true, and I want you to think, I know this is a thinking time this morning, that, that if that's not true, then what that means is that there was a time in eternity past that God existed all alone in isolation, singular. Got to think about that. So if that's true, then it follows that God's deepest motive then has got to be to serve God himself, to serve himself. Now, right here's where I'm wandering in and wading into what a lot of the church and a lot of us grew up on, and that's how they see it. In other words, that God is self-focused, God is self-centered, God is self-glorifying, and, 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 and he wants to create a whole bunch of people to see how awesome he is, and he wants us to all praise him because he seems to to feed off of that. You know what we call that kind of person? A narcissist. Good morning, we're glad you're at Grace Point. Hallelujah. We call that person a narcissist. And, and listen to me, if God is first and foremost a lover of himself, uh, then how can you ever really, truly, deeply trust that person? That's all about themselves. You ever had a relationship with somebody that was all about themselves and you was only essential as long as you was ministering to them? How'd that work out for you? Huh? You couldn't give yourself to that because it was all about them. And that's the way a lot of people look at God. They, they, they say these kind of things. Well, you've been created. The whole purpose God created you was to give him glory. Really? Narcissism again. In other words, the only reason you exist is to bring glory and honor to God. That's, that's it. It's not about relationship. It's about, it's not a love giving God, it's a love receiving God. And that's what, that's what a lot of us grew up in the church. My whole, I, I thought my whole purpose in, in God, in even being alive, was just to bring glory, praise, and honor and pleasure to the Lord by me praising Him. I told you it's like a like parents that have a kid and, and they you know they they got this kid and and they they buy him a bicycle and you know and, and they put training wheels on it and you know ride the bike and you know they get sat down and learns to ride with the training wheels and you know and the kid says oh, man I wanna I wanna ride this thing without these you know with these extra wheels so they they mom and dad's out there to take the training wheels off you know they're encouraging him you can do it. And, you know, mama's cheering him on, dad's running along the bicycle in case he starts to stumble and fall. And after a few tries, all of a sudden, he finds that sweet spot in, in balance and he's able to take off on that bike on his own. 
And man, he is so happy. And when he swings around the block and comes back in and is able to hit the brakes and stop that back, the look on that kid's face is nothing but absolute joy. Just full, off the chart joy. And 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 and, the, and you look on the, uh, the mom and dad's face, it's just joy. And, and then they say to the son, son, listen, we want to tell you something. We love you so much. And we've demonstrated that by what we've done for you, by buying this bicycle for you. Now, what we want you to do is bring honor and glory to us because we're great parents. And we want you to ride this bicycle from this day forward for our glory and for our honor so that you can display our goodness to everybody in the neighborhood. And when they ask you, you tell them that we bought you this bike and how great we are and give us praise for it. How many are starting to feel a little nauseous right now about their parenting skills? Because that's not about love. See that? See uh, the real parent? They just give the bike out of love. Any glory and any any blessing that they receive is just is just a, a an overflow of the of the blessing of the kid. Do you see? You were created for more than just give God glory and praise and get your praise on and make God. I mean, and, and you can tell the difference between people that are praising with their heart and their intent. My, my wife, I won't call the name, she she had a praise going on this morning like she likes to do while she was getting getting ready. Then she had a necklace that got a knot in it. Want me to get that out? Well, we finally gave up the ghost on that and said that'll be a project for this afternoon. <laughs> Couldn't get it done. Um, but I was listening to this person praising it, and they're a great singer now. And I don't, I don't mean no disrespect, and I'm not going to tell you it is. But all I said to her, I said, you know, I said, they got a, they just a little bit too much groveling in there. Groveling, kind of like a worm. You know, the song was filled with a lot, I'm not worthy. You know, I, you know, and it's just really a push to just praise God like he's some egomaniac that you got to just keep pouring it on him or he's going to get mad. Uh, well, What's happening is when we think about God's nature, his character, God's attributes, most of us don't think of that. In other words, when most of us think about God's nature, his attributes, and his character, we think of that through the grid of a one singular person. We don't think of it in terms of a relationship of three persons. And, and, and that's a big deal difference. Uh, most of us have thought of God in two ways. Uh, we have thought of God as a being, this deity, who seems to care more about himself and his agenda. In other words, he's got a big plan. Now, sometimes there's casualties. We're like, you know, chess pieces on the board. Sometimes you're going to lose a few so that you ultimately win the battle. And sometimes we see that that's the way, you know, we think that's maybe how God is. He's seen, he's got his own plan. He's got a bigger plan, a lot bigger than me and my, you know, my family and making a living and going. I mean, you know, God's plan is super bigger than that. And so God seems to have his own agenda and got his own plan and, and we're just kind of pieces on the board. But then what's confusing is yet this God is a God who obviously loved us enough to die for us. And, and between those two tensions, it gets extremely confusing in your head of who is this God? Uh, I, I never really thought of relationship 
when I thought of God. I, I did see it as something that God might do or occasionally or cornonia, if you know what that terms mean, fellowship and relationship. But I, but I didn't see it as essential to God's being of who God was. And, and this is what's changed so drastically in my life, in my theology, how I view God, how I relate to God, and how I see that he relates to me. But, 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 and so I, I didn't see relationship was essential, but listen to me, but I did believe uh, that moral perfection uh, was absolutely essential to God's being. Therefore, morality, uh, which is essential to God, uh, trumped relationship, which is not essential to God. That's how I thought. And so let me tell you what that works out pragmatically in my life as a Christian. What that meant to me is that God cares more about my behavior than he does about me as a person. Now what this often did, this is why I often, and some of you are sitting right there this morning like this, I often felt that God was disappointed with me even angry with me at times because my behavior came up short so many times and I thought God was relating to me based on my behavior on my morality and how well I did and how I kept the rules and how I obeyed and, and all that kind of thing and I didn't see relationship as something that was top of the list with God's being and essence of who he was now, now listen I, I saw God's purpose just, you know, I, I thought there was a time that I spent many years, I thought God just saved me for me to preach the gospel. That was my whole purpose in life. Until I told you some weeks ago, I was saying the first time and I spent the first six years in ministry, official ministry, as an evangelist, and I, I couldn't go to a revival because I was so sick, I couldn't go. I had to cancel. And I was so upset and so confused, and, and part of my confusion was because I didn't know this. And, and I was so confused and, and, and really kind of angry with God. And I said, this don't make any sense. I don't know why you didn't heal me, why you didn't help me to be able to make the revival. I mean, I'm not preaching. Nobody's getting saved. Nothing's happening. Everybody's at the house. I don't see how this brings you any glory. And I was just letting God have it. Called it prayer. You ever done that? And I wasn't expecting God to say nothing because I was basically fussing at him. Most of the time he don't talk anyway, so I just let him hold it. And, I, and, and when I'm telling you the truth, when I got through saying all that and got quiet, I heard God say to me, I heard it, just as clear. He said, the workman is more important than the work. That was a, what you call a truth bomb. That was the beginning of the salvos that God would launch into my heart. Try to see me that he's relate, try to show me that he's a relationship with God. God was saying, I care more about you than person than I do you preaching. He cares more about you. See, if we're just objects, if God has objectified, if he's made objects out of us just to be used in some grand self-fulfilling design, then what that does, listen to me, that makes God uh, self-centered, makes him ego, it makes him an egocentric deity. Do you hear that? And listen to this. And once you add omnipotence to that equation, buddy, you've got yourself a monster that Hollywood couldn't even dream of. If that's the way he is. If that's who he is. But I'm going to tell you that's not who he is. 
Did you hear me? That's not who God is at all. And I wish I'd have known that. When you read the Bible, I, I've just shown you in Genesis, it starts out with the plurality of, of the Godhead. The Bible uses that term over and over. It says we are filled with the fullness of the Godhead bodily in Christ. And then we get to the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who, who, who introduces us and gives us Jesus. That's the purpose of those Gospels, to present Jesus to us. And so Matthew, Mark, uh, uh, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, synonym. They, they are similar. But there's one Gospel that stands out totally different than the other three, and that's the Gospel of John. Now, all those other Gospels are true and accurate, and, 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 and we thank God we have them. And, but they start with the birth of Jesus. They, uh, they start, some of them, before his birth. They start, you know, before, that's where they start, Bethlehem, in a manger, and all that. Not John. Not John. John starts his Gospel not with the birth of Jesus, but he starts his Gospel with the eternal existence of the Godhead in heaven before there was anything. That's where John starts the gospel. And there is a, there is a divine inspired purpose in that. John uh, wants us to, to, to know Jesus' story, but he wants us to know that Jesus' story did not start in Bethlehem in a manger. That's not when Jesus came into existence. And 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 because he starts out and says, uh, in, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with." That word translated in English "with" is a Greek word that means face to face. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, for the Word was God. Right. And then it goes on in the next verse or the verse following and says, there, in, everything that is made, there's nothing that is created or made that was not made by him and for him. There's nothing that was made. Now, was you made or what? That includes you then, don't it? It was about two months ago that I pulled the chairs up, and I won't do that again today for the sake of time, but I pulled the chairs up to demonstrate to you my heart towards this subject and I wasn't even talking about it that day. It was just out of an overflow at the end of what I was talking about that day. And, and, and I said, most people view the Trinity like three chairs lined up like a tribunal. They really see God as the big shot, you know, the big chair. And then they see Jesus at the right hand. And then the Holy Spirit's over here perched on a branch because he's a dove. He's a bird. And that's a lot of the Christians' view, honestly, deep down. If they, that's their view of the Trinity. And most people don't give it much thought. But God is one God, but he is in three persons. He, he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible, New Testament, is explicitly uh, clear that, that deity is in all three and is all three. Anybody read the Bible know I just told the truth? Say amen. amen. So there, there's equal deity assigned to each one, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see the, we see the triunions of this all throughout the Bible. At Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks audibly from heaven. We see Jesus, of course, standing there, and the Holy Spirit descends in a bodily form as a dove. 
We see the Trinity. We see the three displayed right there at, at, at Jesus' baptism. But what John does with his gospel that's so unique is, is he wants us to, 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 to our view to be shaped by the lens of this triune God who existed before there was a Bethlehem and he wants us to view the rest of the story of Jesus through that lens. In other words, he wants to, to see everything about Jesus through, through the lens of the triuneness or the Trinity. And John starts his story with relationship. John starts his story with relationship. And, and, and John seemingly to me is answering a question of how does God save us relationally? How does God restore back what was lost in the garden? Do you understand that before sin was, what we have is a relational God that's coming and he is relating to his children. He's walking with them. He's fellowshipping with them. And God is not solitary and singular alone, but God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And to me, when you start seeing that, it's like a party. And, and, and what the Trinity is, is, is the Trinity, the bomb of that is God is not alone. God's not alone. And, and within the, listen, within the being of God, there is a relationship Three persons that are united in absolute mutual love and communion, listen, without the loss of personal distinctiveness. And, and, and see, listen to me. We don't have any example of that on planet Earth. That's why it's so hard for us to grasp it, because we have nothing to compare it to. Now listen to me. The word holy when the Bible talks about, and God himself says that I am the Lord your God, I am holy. God says he's holy. God is holy. The prophets said God is holy. But you know what most of the church thinks when they hear that? They think in terms of a legalistic term. A moralistic grid. We, we don't even know what the real Hebrew root meaning of the word holy is. Uh, it means to be set apart. To be uniquely and absolutely separate. It means that there is nothing like this. It is holy. It is distinct. We say it like this. There is none like you, God. There is nothing like you on this planet. There's nobody like you. You are, you are unique. You are distinct. You are God. There's nothing like you. That's what it means. But most of the church, we've fallen into that. We, we see it in some moralistic grid and God cared more. And then that, again, that puts us right back to God cares more about what you, how you behave instead of who you are. That's why the Trinity is so important. And when I began this journey, you know, some 15, 20 years ago with grace, this has just to me been a, a, an absolute uh, a result of that journey. Because when you see God as the God that, that he really truly is and not as the God that religion has made him out to be. Because, and in, in, in of course, it goes back to this thing, and I know you hear me talk about this a lot, but this this guy, this has to be talked about. Because most of us started with the, with, the, with the paradigm that we're separated from God, that you're a rotten sinner, you're a sinner, God can't even hardly look at you. And to emphasize that, they make up stuff that's not in the Bible, 
And they say it like it is in the Bible. They say this. How many heard preachers say this? God's so holy he can't even look at sin. How many know you heard you heard the preacher say that, right? Stick your hand up if you ever heard a preacher say that. And I tell you a preacher lied when he tell you that. It's not in the Bible. How stupid is that? God's so holy he can't look at sin. Where'd you get that from? You just made it up. And for those that are sitting there waiting on proof, and I get weary of saying it, but I have to say it because there's new people here. Before they sinned, did God come and walk in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve? Fellowship with them, hung out with them. Did he? Not hard, but. Okay, after sin entered in and death through sin, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, and now they're sinners, right? We can, can we agree they're sinners? Yes, sir. Okay, did God still show up? Yes. I thought we were separated. Church told me, the church puts up the graphic and so I got God over here, he's holy. And then there's this huge gap, like right here, okay? So God would put, so God's right here. And then this big, big gap, look out for the hellfire down there. And then we over here. And so you're cut off from God. You're separated from God. And you got to figure out a way to get from here all the way back over here from which you fell. This little gap right in here is called religion. And so if you got to figure out how to get from here to here, then that helps you to just make up the rules of how that happens. So then you can have a Baptist way to get from here to here. Go on and get offended. I don't care. Or you can have a Methodist way. Oh, you can have a Catholic way. You can have a Jehovah Witness way, a Mormon way, a, a, a Hindu, a Buddhist way, an Islamic way. You can have all kinds of ways. But ain't none of them the right way because it's really just Yahweh. <laughs> it's just Jesus' way. Jesus. Religion is not the way to Jesus. Jesus is the way. Amen. And it's just a big fat lie that God has ever been separated from you. Amen. Now you can be sitting here thinking you're just a dirty, rotten sinner and God can't even stand to look at you. And I'm telling you, that's all lies. It's absolutely a lie. And what we see is Adam and Eve is the one that changed their behavior when they sinned because their view of God changed because they projected their hurt, wounds, and sin and brokenness onto this God. God didn't change. God still came at the same time. God still came in the cool of the evening just like he always does. God didn't change. They're the ones now that is hiding from God. They're the ones that say, I'm afraid of you now, God. They're the ones that's doing religious fig leaves and trying to fix their own mess. They're the ones that changed. Not God. And I've told you this, it's just almost comical. Uh, the, the name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God where? God with who? With you? Does that mean just God with people in the church? Does that mean God with just the Christians? See, you see how it dropped off right there? You see how it dropped off right there on that last one. But see, you ain't sure about that. 
God's with everybody. The grace of God for salvation has appeared unto all men. All men. God has never been away from you ever. Now your sin has made you feel like, and there's only one verse in the whole Old Testament, there's only verse in the Bible, that seems to, if you don't read it correctly, will seem like, well, you know, it says your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have caused his face to, to, to not be upon you. It's not that God's doing any movement. Your sin. See, when you sin, it makes you feel not closer to God. Because you think God relates to you based on your behavior. God's not relating to you based on your sin. God's relating to you based on his son. Either Jesus took away the sin of the world or he did not. If he didn't, he's got to come back and do it. Because that's what John pointed at him at his baptism and said he would do. He would take away the sin of the world. And it goes on to say that he is the propitiation, which means is the appeasing sacrifice, not only for our sins, he said, but for the sins of the entire world. That includes everybody. Therefore, that is why God's not angry with you. And all the hell you're going through is not called God's paying you back for your sin. There are consequences to bad decisions. You can stick your fingers in a fan that's running and it's going to hurt you. God didn't do it. God's not trying to get your attention. God didn't build the fan to get you. You made a bad choice. And you will suffer and you will hurt for it. But God is not the author of your pain nor the cause of your dilemma. God is not even angry with you. And yet we still here in 2022 and preachers are still portraying God as an angry God. They, they, they give him the blame for sending hurricanes and storms and earthquakes and floods. And it's all life. And God just takes it, man. He just takes it. But his kids know better. There's some storms tried that mess on Jesus when he was on the planet. He rebuked them. How many hurricanes did you see Jesus seeing when he walked there? No. How many floods did you see him send to any town or village? How many people did you see him make sick while he walked the planet? How many people did he give cancer to? How many people came to him for healing that he went home still sick? See a pattern here? Why would Jesus rebuke a storm if his papa sent it? If God's in charge of all the weather that happens on planet Earth, why would Jesus rebuke his father by rebuking what his father sent? Why did Jesus raise anybody from the dead? I thought when you die, it's just your time. I thought God was in control. I thought you said don't question God because he never makes a mistake. I thought you said if you died, it's just because God talked you out. It was your time. You was appointed to that. And here comes Jesus, and he, he's working against his father. 
And he's raising people from the dead that apparently his father clocked them out on the time clock in heaven. And now Jesus is working against his father and saying, no, daddy, you got it wrong. Get up from the dead. You see how when you start breaking down your religion, how stupid it is? And why preachers go to funerals and say stupid stuff over dead people? And make people sitting there with tears in their eyes and a broken heart hate him because they attribute that death to God. And man, in my 35 years of doing this, I have had to stand alongside of some nutcase preachers at funerals. That's exactly what I meant. And I got to go up there when there's two or three of us and I got to follow that mess while they talk about God did it. Don't question God. God never makes a mistake. And I sit there and look at the pain and the anguish and the hurt and then parents that's got a little casket that's three, four feet long and say that God picked a flower for the bouquet table of heaven. God needed an angel. I wish people on Facebook would figure out, no matter how many times you die, you ain't gonna never be no angel. If God needed an angel, he would burp one out. He would make one. You'll never be an angel. You're not no angel. An angel is a lower created being than you. An angel is not created in the image and likeness of God like you are. The Bible said in the Old Testament that we will judge angels one day, Paul said. Don't you know you will judge angels? How you gonna judge something if it's a higher creation than you? Y'all are looking at me so strange. I thought Hayden Burton was going to say we were created a little lower than the angels. It's in the Old Testament and it is a mistranslation. The translators, am I telling the right apostle? Translator, it says that you were created a little lower than Elohim. Translators changed that to angels because they couldn't imagine that we would be created a little lower than God. But that's how you were created, because you were created in his likeness and his image. And when man sinned, God still came because he doesn't change how he sees you and he relates to you relationally out of the triuneness of who he is. And when you can grasp that what John was trying to get us to see, that you and I are included now in that Trinity. And that's why that Sunday that I demonstrated that, instead of the chairs being lined, three chairs this way facing you and God's your judge. Then I put the chairs face to face in a circle because that's what John says and that's what the Bible says. In the beginning was the word and the word was face to face with God. The Passion Translation, I read it uh, Thursday night, that's the way it reads. That God was face to face because in that communion, in that, that fellowship, and yet they don't absorb one another and there's no fighting, there's no bickering, there's no jealousy, there's no envy, there's no strife. They're just absolute full joy, love, communion, fellowship relationship between the Trinity and you were included in that from the very beginning. John, I mean, you made a statement and I know it was so deep that you were like, what she's talking about before time was. The Bible says that in the New Testament. It's, it, it's, it, the Bible says that before there was a heaven and an earth, God, his creative purpose was that we would be adopted as sons and daughters before the foundation of the world. 
That means before Adam and Eve, before there was the garden, before any of that, God's creative purpose was for you to be adopted as sons and daughters and to be in that fellowship and communion with him. Amen. So now, when I when I see God and when I when I relate to God and I relate to the aspects and the character and the nature of God, then then I see that starting from where John said to start relationship. I'm in a relationship with the God that is a relational God, and He's not judge, He's not looking at me on a moralistic behavior grid anymore. And and that view of God, you know what it done, done for me? It makes me trust him. Amen. It just makes me trust him. If God was this solitary, singular being, deity over here, with no one to relate to, and he created us, and then he, you know, fellowships with us because he created us, what, you know, I mean, how, how are you going to relate to that? But God being Father, Son, and Spirit, yet one, and in that relationship, God included us, he said, there are, there are no things that are made that were not made by him. Yeah. You, were, you and I were created. You, God saw us. God included us. And, and really the whole salvation thing, God's inviting you and me yeah. Yeah. to come into the realization of what he created you for from the very beginning. That's why the Apostle Paul in Galatians was so amazed when he said, he said, when it, when, when it, when it pleased the Lord who, uh, who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal Christ in me, not to me. Paul said, I didn't even know he was in there the whole time. And he awakened to that. He came to the realization of God's eternal purpose and that fellowship and communion that God had planned for him before eternity was. Do you see that? So that's why, why is it so important? That's the reason. And now when you hear God, when you hear the name of God, I, I, don't, I, I implore you, don't think of one singular solitary person. I've read through, there are three in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those three are one. I've told you many times that this, and I, it's just a poor, poor, a translation, or not translation, it's just a poor example, I guess, and even now more poor as far as my understanding of the Trinity. But I, you know, some people always, they just always ask me, I don't understand how three things can be, you know, and yet different. I don't understand how it hurts my head. Well, how about this? Bypass your head and go straight to your heart with it. Go, go straight to your heart with it. Because that's who God is. He, he's a relational God that relates to His children. And that's why. One of the songs that they sung today, listen to me. God, you're, you're, the song said, you're just, just you're, you're never more loved than you are right now. Did they sing that or not? Now, is that true or not? If it ain't true, we need to get it off the same list. But so, so God cannot, there's not anything you can do to improve your position with God and in, in, in so that he would love you more. Do you know that he loves you while you were lost without God? Blaspheming his name, cursing him. He loved you the same then as he does now if you're born again. Yeah. 